Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. You're about to hear a conversation I had with a great panel of guests, all of them interested in the purpose of higher education. You know, I teach at Trinity College here in Hartford, and I always tell my students, I'm not really a college professor, I'm not really part of academia. For me to teach a class, I need to have a reason. Uh, And they should have a reason to take my class. To me, the purpose of education goes back to the mission outlined by Thomas Jefferson, to school the mind and hone the intellect so that the average person could resist the depredations of tyrants and act for him or herself. And this extends all the way up, by the way, to what I've done recently, which is decide I don't like Thomas Jefferson very much and I've overthrown him in my own mind. But anyway, do you really need higher education to learn to think independently And if that's not what it's for, what is higher education for? I want you to meet the people who will be talking about this with me, Michael Gargano, Jr., former provost and senior vice president for academic and student affairs at Connecticut State College and University System. Those are the people who basically kind of run all the state universities and community colleges except for UConn. Jan Rubino is owner and operator of Bookkeeping by the Numbers, LLC. She's a veteran. She's active in local politics. She served on the Tallinn Board of Education. She's one of the people uh, we have on the panel who has built a successful career without a college degree. The other one is Jonathan Jennings, Vice President, Chief Operating Officer of Connecticut Wedding Group. And then I wanted the last voice to be somebody who works in the tech sector because we know tech is the area of growth in America. I want to know if people who hire workers in that field are looking for a bachelor's degree in their employees. So Scott DeFelice is President, CEO, and Chairman of the Board of Oxford Performance Materials. Here's the discussion we had on stage at Watkinson School in West Hartford. Michael, I'm going to begin with you. And obviously, I'm about to ask you a question that has a 20-minute answer, but please don't do that. Uh, One of the things that you've struggled to do in a lot of the roles you've been in, but especially the most recent one, is to balance that whole question of job preparation versus some kind of cherished idea of what a liberal arts education is in a way that's exclusive of job preparation. So, and I know from talking to you that you don't think one is the enemy of the other. So how, how do you think that four-year institutions best strike that balance? I think what we're talking about could be the strength of the Connecticut State College and University system. Because the strength when you bring together community colleges and four-year universities, you begin to have a discussion on the continuum of, of education. And the continuum of education puts equal emphasis on a certificate, an associate degree, as we do a bachelor's degree and as we would do in selected uh, doctoral degrees. And so in that context, it's very important that we begin to understand the economy of the state of Connecticut and meeting the needs of not only the Fortune 100 companies in Connecticut, but many of the smaller companies that have the potential for incredible growth. The other part here is the alignment of the curriculum between a community college and a four-year university. So that, in fact, the types of skills that I hear every single employer ask for 
critical thinking skills, analytical skills, teamwork skills, communication skills are taught throughout that curriculum. And I think there is a way to bring that together in the curriculum through apprenticeships, through internships, so that, in fact, the system of community colleges and four-year universities can better meet, meet the needs of the state of Connecticut as well. Now, that will require some give and take amongst the community colleges and the four-year universities. Mm. You know, if you sort of follow the, the successes of the people who are the most famous these days for being successful, you'd never go to college or you'd go and you'd immediately drop out. Bill Gates, Steve Jobs, these are some of the most famous John Mackey, the guy who's the head of Whole Foods, uh, dropped out, I think, several times. The guy who founded Mashable never went to college. The guy who founded Spotify, I think, went for three weeks or or three months or something in Sweden and then dropped out. Everything except PayPal. And that guy is actually bribing people to drop out of college right now, and we may come to that. To that list, of course, we can add Jonathan Jennings, another magnate. Uh, He's a wedding magnate. But, not not um, exactly. But, yeah. <laughs> and, but Jonathan, I, I want to, I mean, we're going to come back to your story a few times, but even listening to Michael talk, I'm wondering if you'd want to react to that from the point of view of somebody who hires right now. When you hire people, you, you've hired a lot of people, I know, with, with four-year degrees. How well does that match up with what it is you need from people? Well, you know, I think it matches up well. And I think that one of the things that has been fascinating to me, because it has been well chronicled at this point that I, in fact, do not have a four-year degree, but hiring people that do and looking at their debt load, looking at their critical thinking skills, their problem-solving skills, the way that they write and spell and, and handle math, the way that they're able to bring new creative content online, it's really lacking in a lot of the areas. And, and I find myself, as I get to know these young people, these are people that are in their, their mid-20s, some of them perhaps even as, as old as 30, and they are really struggling to lead adult lives because they've got student loan debts, 40, 50, 60, I think the highest one we have is $85,000. And to service that debt while at the same time trying to purchase a home and buy a car and have children and live an adult life, they're really hamstrung. And the equation just isn't making a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Because you want to be self-actualized. I mean, that's one of the goals here. It's not just job preparation. You want to be self-actualized. If you're 30 and you still can't even move out of your parents' house, which you're seeing, right? Which I'm seeing. I I have a, a, there's a, a lovely, incredibly bright young woman who works in our office on Saturdays, and she works for $15 an hour, and she answers the telephone. She has a law degree from Quinnipiac University. She has $150,000 in student debt. Uh, She's 27 years old but lives with her parents because she can't afford to move out of her parents' home. And she can't find a job that will pay her enough to service her debt and at the same time live an adult life. I I really wonder what her future is going to be. And, And I haven't asked this question because I don't quite know her on this level. But if you had to do it all over again, would you? Hmm. So, Jan, um, the first thing that you did rather than go to college was join the armed services, right? Tell us about that. That's correct. I grew up on a dairy farm. I didn't have an option of going to school. And my brother was an officer in the military, and he enlisted me. He's a really nice guy, really. He is. (laughs) Did did he enlist you with your consent, or was it just a... (laughs) Did you wake up one day? I was in my own presence of mind, I think. 
One of the things I wanted to clarify that I think is a little bit different in this day and age is we don't have the same working farms or the same the same growing up for our children now that we did when we were young. There are very few opportunities to learn that work ethic at an early age. And I, I know from where I'm living now, I have very few friends whose children ever have to work before they go to school. So going into college with no work history, in my opinion, is just ludicrous. Mm-hmm. I went in, while there was a GI Bill, I went in during the Vietnam War. I was the last of the Women's Army Corps. When I came out, I went to work right away because I had to. I bought my own home on the uh, GI Bill, and I had to pay a mortgage. And so I, I blew it, and I never went to college. I never took advantage of the GI Bill. I, I regretted that for many years. However, I worked, and I worked hard, and I worked usually as a medical or dental practice manager, and I worked my way through the system. I had my own home. I believe in a college education. Some years ago, I married a man who had children, and they came to live with us full-time in the middle school years. And I would not have not allowed them not to go to college, but I made those kids work from the age of 16. And I, they both had a successful college experience. Uh, you know, Jane, before I go over to Scott, why did you think, I mean, given the fact that you have become a successful businesswoman without a college education, why did you think it was so important, so vital for those two kids to go to college? From my experience and some of the struggles that I had, I believe, and I'm going to speak from the women's perspective on this board, but I believe that women that are not educated have much... Uh, more risk of being in abusive relationships and have a bigger struggle. Mm. Interesting. Or maybe, you know, maybe- I'd like to oh. chime in on that if I could also, Colin. You know, I, I have done, I'm very fortunate, I have done very well in my field, but if I were to leave my field tomorrow and say want to do something else, I think that the options that I would have available to me would be very limited. And it really wouldn't matter very much that I have 20 years of experience running a successful business. I don't think that would count for a lot. So without having that piece of paper, I, I think that your options to move and be flexible. Yeah, I know that's an important thing that I want to come back to, too. But So, Scott, uh, you, you are here for uh, the world of tech, and you're in a field that, even though I don't understand it very well, I know it's, it's exploding. There's great things happening in it. So are you getting job applicants with the kinds of education? I'm assuming that you don't really care whether they've read Nathaniel Hawthorne or not, or maybe, maybe you do, or that they know whether or not they like Renoir's paintings or not. What are you looking for, and are you finding it among the people coming out of colleges? So we need folks who are brilliant scientists. So they tend to be highly focused, very deep. Maybe they have a PhD, and you need those guys. And, you know, they may not know a lot about Renoir. Mm -hmm. They're going to be really good pushing molecules around and running formulas and programs. Then you need another class of people who could actually talk to those people but have a broader empathy and (laughs) uh, explain it to normal people who invest and do things. So, you know, you need those guys. Mm. And then you need these guys who are like tech guys, right? You know, Mm. they love tech. They go in, they do their job, and maybe, you know, we we pull out a lot of those guys from Ask Nuntuck. You know, we still have those sort of programs. And and then you need just numerate workers. So they they should come out of a high school and be numerate and be reasonably intelligent, but they don't have to be rock stars. Mm. So, you know, we need all that. And we do, we actually do find that we get that. But if you 
just have too much of one, you don't really have the right balance. You're looking for, and, and in fact, most of, the, most of the leadership, actually, the people who go out and create the stuff, tend to actually be folks who can communicate with the scientists but actually are the broader... I mean, I have a sociology degree. Right? Mm-hmm. I'm running a tech company. I mean, how did that happen, right? You know, it's because, you know, you have the ability to engage and communicate. And those are things that traditional liberal arts education can deliver. All these things are valid. Uh, it's just getting the right balance inside the company or, or the activity. Let me just press you on that a little bit. So you enumerated right there sort of three different kinds of workers. Does, the per, does an applicant's education determine how you think about that applicant? Pre- pretty much. I mean, so you can't manage a business to the outlier. So we do have outliers. We'll have a guy with an associate's degree who ends up taking a job that you know, once he's in the company, ends up in a very senior position, a senior technical position, because, you know what, some people are just brilliant. It doesn't matter. But for most part, you know, if I'm on the other side of the table and you don't want to invest in your education under the idea that you're going to be an outlier, you want to invest in your education that you're going to be, okay, above average. (laughs) We're going to take a break. We'll be back with more of this conversation. Is college worth it? They got an education and they all We're back. We're live from this beautiful amphitheater at Watkinson School with a wonderful audience. Show the world that you exist. I want to sort of, there's a couple of different models for why anybody goes to college, why anybody uh, needs a four-year degree. We've sort of touched on them a little bit, but let's home in on them a little bit more closely. So, Michael, one of the uh, terms that really kind of has surfaced over the last couple of decades, if not more, is human capital, right? That, you know, basically what you're doing when you're educating somebody is increasing the value of their human capital. Somebody with a four-year degree has more human capital than a two-year degree, theoretically. Somebody who has a graduate degree beyond a bachelor's degree has even more human capital. And that expresses itself ideally, or at least theoretically, in what that person is able to do for an employer and also what that person is able to earn as an employee. How important should this human capital question be? I mean, is, is that the first thing we should talk about? Well, I mean, human capital is, is important. An educated society was a better society. And so I don't think that should be minimized. On the other hand, the state of Connecticut has entered into a consultant agreement with the National Center for Higher Education Management. And there's been this um, planning commission on how do we create higher education in Connecticut to meet the needs of the citizens and the needs of business and industry. Now, everyone will agree, for the most part, an educated society benefits both the individual and the state. But here's some of their statistics. In 2012, 56% of the Connecticut population had a credential higher than a high school diploma. By 2025, they're projecting that the state will need 70% of the population with a credential higher than a high school diploma. It means the state of Connecticut needs approximately 300,000 more citizens with an academic credential. Now, when you overlay this, with the decline in high school graduates, the decline in the population, and a whole variety of other things, it makes you wonder if that, that's achievable. How will Connecticut advance itself in the highly competitive world of, uh, of economic development? 
So how will you compete with Texas? How are we going to compete with, with New York that has given incredible tax benefits in so many other states and yet try to attain this level of a credentialed citizenship? Well, Scott, I'll hand you the magic wand. You can tweak this system so that you get more of what you want. What would you change? I think you got to respect the reality of where the economic growth is. So if the economic growth is in tech, then you need people, and that's where the jobs are going to be, then you have to create the right environment for, for people to be appropriate for that. If you don't do that, then, of course, you're going to – the human capital question is a different question because the human capital question to me comes down to if – and I don't want to disrespect any particular major, but if you're taking Russian literature and you, put, you, you lump that in with a structural engineer, well, one's going to have a higher prospect of getting mm-hmm. sustainable employment than the other. I'm not saying that doesn't mean they're both not valuable things to do. So I think the numbers uh, that people look at in terms of human capital and the benefit of the four-year degree actually are biased because a lot of people are getting educated. A lot of those degrees are not in need, so it sort of drags down the number. But I think if you say, well, of the degrees that are in need, what's the number? I think the, the return on the human capital investment is extraordinary. You know, the, just to go backwards, I mean, Michael was going forwards. Going backwards, in 1980, only one in six Americans, 25 and older, were college graduates. Fifty years ago, it was fewer than one in ten. But one of the questions would be, we're creating more supply, are we meeting the demand? I think there's a disconnect between the real needs of business and industry in our community colleges and, and, and universities. And one way to begin to address that is that Scott, as the CEO of his company, who might need engineers, he might need various people who are experts in 3D printing and experts in healthcare and what have you, is actually to participate with the institution in the recruitment of students, and then the actual evaluation of students that will enter that program. Gene, I want to come back to something that you said. You, you said uh, one of the reasons that you believe in, in, in higher education now, particularly for women, is that they're less likely to be victimized, particularly in domestic mm-hmm. abuse situations, if they have that. So I want to sort of get you to sort of talk a little bit about why that might be. And specifically, you know, one thing Michael could tell us at great length about some of the alternatives that exist now that didn't exist for you, online learning, learning, distance learning, various kinds of hybrid courses, things that you can do. Usually, I think Michael would say they, sh- they should be paired up ideally with face-to-face uh, situations too, but opportunities that might have actually made a difference to you in terms of your ability to, to get a four-year degree back then had that kind of thing existed. But I'm wondering if that's also really what you're talking about, because if we're talking about education as something that empowers you in a different way, do you think it needs to take place in a more standard, almost literally collegial environment? One of the things that I really feel there is a disconnect right now is children entering 18 years old, sometimes 17 years old, entering college. Mm -hmm. Do they know what they want to do at that point in time and who's guiding them to that, in that direction? How do we help our, guide our children, and for us it was daughters, into a place that fits who they are? You know, what is the definition of success? So, Building up their confidence to do something in an area that they enjoy was so important. You know, I I think I'm going to go to college and I think I'm going to do this. Mm. Well, that was great when college was $3,000 a year. Mm. But that's not the case anymore. 
So I think the fact that when our children went to college, they were very self-confident in what they wanted to do, and that a lot of that was understanding their personality and a lot of dinner conversations. What if they said they wanted to major in Russian literature? Uh, well, they may have wanted to do that, but they would have had to find a way to do that all by themselves. <laughs> that was just not going to happen because that's, you know, that just was not on our radar screen. Again, you know, one of the things that we're faced with right now is a $1 trillion college debt in this country, mm. and it's going to impact all of us. My concern is the way children are encumbered with debt when they come out of college and parents as well. I have a grave concern about that. Is it worth it? All right. It's a tough night for Russian literature uh, here tonight. Um, was anybody planning to do that with their lives? Because I, I think we may have beat that out of you by the time we're uh, done here. I'm sorry. I probably didn't answer your question, Colin. No. But that's you know, pretty much my concern. But I believe that you can help guide. And I think that we need more of that. We don't have enough guidance counselors in high school. And to be honest with you, I think that they had a pretty poor guidance system in their freshman year of college. In, poor in what way? Parents now do not have, we don't have a good conversation with the college because the college wants to think that the student is an adult at 18. You don't get an option to see their grades or we had a way of doing that because we simply weren't going to pay without getting the, the grades. But they don't have somebody to go to that really sets their direction for them. You sent us an article yesterday that was quite interesting to read. This is an article that ran in the Atlantic, and it, it talked about whether or not Americans are overattached to the bachelor degree. Uh, and it, uh, the author described two nephews. One of them was that nephew who actually did, I think it took him six years to complete what was essentially a four-year degree. He did accidentally take the same class twice. It just didn't really dawn on him. It was the same class. It had a different professor. How was he supposed to know? Um, <laughs> and, and then after that... Um, the article described him as having sort of knocked around for a while at some white-collar jobs that he basically didn't like that much. And I think about the time of the writing, he was living at home with his parents. I mean, he may not even have a job. He was said he looked nostalgically and fondly to the days when he worked for a pizza place. The other one, the other, the other person had been a lot more focused and had done apprenticeships, had done uh, a certain kind of restaurant training, had taken very sort of job-focused courses, done apprentice work, moved from Milwaukee to uh, New York, and wound up working in like this very high-end places, Mario Batali places, and, you know, and still ultimately wound up moving back to Milwaukee, realizing that certain kinds of food services jobs, no matter how skilled he was, no matter how well-trained he was, no matter how, the imp how impressive the places he had worked, there were certain kinds of jobs that he couldn't get without a four-year degree. The employer would just insist on it. And then he also discovered that nothing he had done up to that point, none of it counted one credit towards that four-year degree. He was right. in now well into his young adult life, and he was going to have to start over and get that degree. That's a chilling picture. You know, I mean, in some ways, Scott, once again, it argues for the idea that you as an employer should be looking at the whole person as opposed to the credits to the degree, to the degree that maybe, you know, maybe there's a person like that, 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 that second person who doesn't have the four-year degree is that outlier that you talked about. Um, how sure are you can, that you can spot that person without that four-year degree? Yeah, so the th we're, we're looking for two things. We're looking for... 
inquisitiveness, and that's something that you can normally tell by someone's life story uh, in self-learning. So the degree gets you to the table with a certain degree of learning and intelligence and discipline. So, But if you stay there, if you are that 21-year-old person, by the time you're 30, you know, you're, you're a basket case, right? Mm-hmm. So you really, it's really about what we're looking for is that person to be really inquisitive and self-learning. If they have that and you see that in spades, then you start thinking, okay, this is a different character. Let, mm-hmm. Let's think more broadly about what can be done. And, and so that, that's what we're really ultimately searching for because the, the education times out rather rapidly, right? <laughs> um, well, you know, Jen, yeah, go ahead. Colin, I just have one thing I wanted to point out. We talk about experience, life experience, um, and how that should relate to a college education. The military, I was in for seven years, is a phenomenal resource for learning. It taught me about community service. It taught me diversity skills that I didn't learn from where I grew up. It didn't count for one credit for college. Mm-hmm. And it, we really have to focus on life experience with these people. They're tremendous learners. Well, you know, Jonathan, you know, to, to um, Scott's point uh, about the inquisitive mind. So one of the things that we think about college is that, like, I went to a four-year college, and I, the one thing that I could say was that I, I think I learned how to learn, right? I learned how to ask questions. I mean, I, I went to work the day after I graduated from college. I was a newspaper reporter. I was covering uh, a meeting. I think my first night I covered a meeting of the Economic Development Commission in Glastonbury. Uh, they were debating an industrial park. And I did know quite a bit about Nathaniel Hawthorne, but I didn't know what an Economic Development Commission was. Uh, I didn't know really what an industrial park was or how it worked. or And I really kind of didn't know anything uh, about the world. And I, I was very ill-prepared to tell the people of Glastonbury what their Economic Development Commission was doing that night. And I can't defend the work that I did at that time. The, but <laughs> as I look... We're looking that up. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's, it would be incomprehensible, I'm sure. But I, I think I did learn how to learn. You're a really, really smart articulate person. Do you think that you missed anything by not going to college? Oh, without question. And, you know, had I had it to do over again, I would certainly make different choices. Mm. And I I certainly don't recommend my way. And I'm I'm not at all sitting here advocating that young people should not go to college. I am a parent. I have a a 14-year-old daughter and a 12-year-old son. And I'm certainly not recommending they don't go to college. It's been a very difficult, long, hard journey for me to go from where I was to where I am. I've had to pick up a lot of the pieces along the way and really work hard, work harder in many respects than, than other people around me. But I think those are things that you either have in your character and your nature or you don't. And if I had had the opportunity to go to uh, a four-year college and, and graduate, would I be in a different place in my life? It's hard to imagine that I would, but perhaps I would have had an easier path to get here. We'll be back right after this. We're going to talk more about the intrinsic value of college. Uh, are there other alternatives, other ways to do this? I wish I could go back to college. In college, you know who you are. You sit in the choir. I outsmarted them. I figured out that college wouldn't prepare me for a fancy white-collar job, so I spent four years at Vassar majoring in cupcakes and muffins. Food truck, here I come. $200,000 well spent. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and Colin McEnroe. 
Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and our interns are Nate Gagnon and Zachary LaSala. The part of Bill Curry was played by Dean Wormer. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff's toga party, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, Arnold Chase prepares you for doomsday. And now, back to Colin. We're recording live here at Watkinson School. We've got a great audience here tonight. They're well-fed. So let's say somebody, some young person said, well, I don't understand, Jonathan, or Mr. Jennings, I hope they would call you. Why can't I just go to work for you right now? I'm not really sure I'm ready for college. I'm not sure I'll ever be ready for college. But I think I could do what you do or what you need me to do. And maybe while I'm doing that for four years, my parents can take some of the tuition they were going to throw at me and invest it. When I wanted to go to college, I'd have more money maybe to go to college. So Mr. Jennings, why, why shouldn't I just come to work for you right now? I think I'd be really good at it, and I don't really see the point of college right now. What I would say to that young person, if that young person were to ask me after this program that question, I would say, no, you, you should definitely go to college now with a purpose, with a goal, because the opportunities later in life to go back are really limited. And there, if you come and you work side by side with me for every day and, and, and we work 50 hours a week together, you're, over the course of time, you're going to learn how to do this job. You're going to learn this business. You're going to learn how it works. But none of that's going to help you when you go back to start your college education. Because right now, there don't seem to be opportunities for people to apply their real-world experience towards earning degrees. And, and I think personally that that would be uh, an area that perhaps should be considered or focused upon because there are lots of people that I think would do better if they had an opportunity to go out into the workforce, to be in an apprentice program and learn some real-life skills and also, quite frankly, to grow up and mature and perhaps start the college process at 22 with a firmer footing. Mm. But, yeah. but Jonathan, was that when school was not 25 or 35 or $45,000 a year? Would you recommend to one of your employees that doesn't have a college education to spend that much on a college education now? Well, that's a real difficult question. If it's a person that didn't have any direction and didn't have any resources, I guess probably not. But let's start at the community, uh, community college level. Let's start taking the core courses that have to be taken. Let's take them in the, the least expensive way possible, and let's maximize the opportunities. Then a part of the conversation is that college is becoming for the elite. It, it is. And so, Michael, this is a, I know you had something else you wanted to say, so say that too. But this is a great place for you to leap in, which is, I mean, we, we know what's happening right now. And you saw it happening at this, uh, in the state system here. It's happening in even a more macro level nationally, which is that, you know, Jonathan's got a good idea. Maybe start at the two-year level, get those core courses. Except the resources are being, we have at least one community college teacher here. The resources are, resources are being chipped, chipped, chipped away at that level. And that you know, Princeton, in some ways, is receiving more public support than a two-year college or a four-year college that needs to deliver it to people who don't have those kinds of resources. So what's happening here, and how do you, how do you stem that tide? Well, let me see here. <laughs> Connecticut is um, it's more than a mess, funding public higher education. This is one of my great disappointments in coming back to the state because when I was recruited here, I was told certain things about the funding, and then I get here, and it has been nothing but reduction in, in, in state support, and it has been nothing but a 
absolute attack on the academic community, an attack on faculty, an attack on shared governance, and everything else that we've known over the years to come in love. And so when states reduce their funding for public higher education, at least in this Connecticut State College and University system, there's very limited other revenue sources that it can call upon. Right? Mm-hmm. It can't necessarily call upon its alumni to donate big-time dollars. It doesn't have the capacity to generate a lot of money from research grants that various faculty salaries and other various facilities can be charged off to. It doesn't necessarily have uh, significant uh, auxiliary contracts for dining services and bookstores and the other things that we find traditionally at flagship universities. So invariably what happens, the reduction leads to an increase in tuition and fees, which then leads into an increase for students. And students pay more, but unfortunately they don't receive anything more for what they're paying. So here's what I think here. I think the model in Connecticut needs to change in how we fund public higher education. Right now, the model is predominantly based upon enrollments. The more enrollment, the more you get from the state, and the more you generate from tuition and fees. That it becomes, in some way, a greater interest to keep the student enrolled. And it allows, as my colleague here on the panel rightfully points out, students are allowed to aimlessly wander through the campus and take a whole bunch of credits and without making any progress towards a degree and then eventually time runs out on their federal financial aid and they've got to get out and got no degree but huge debt. So what I've written quite often and I've shared it with our Colin here is that I think the model has to change to a performance-based funding model here in Connecticut, that the model recognizes enrollments, it it recognizes facilities, it recognizes all of the basic costs of the institution, but there's this other big pot of money that's set aside that's based on your performance. How well do you retain students and do you graduate students in four years and do you graduate students in six years and are you meeting the needs of our business and industry? And if you are, you'll be rewarded for that. And I've had this in Louisiana and Texas and other places that I've worked, and you'll be amazed how all of a sudden everybody becomes much more focused. And all of a sudden we don't lose track of her daughter. All of a sudden we figure out that this is the right major and it's not, would you say, Russian literature or something? (laughs) And all of a sudden retention rates improve and graduation rates improve and we have a much better environment. So one of the real downsides when we talk about value We quickly move towards cost and student debt and employability and compensation. And there are things that colleges and universities can implement tomorrow if they wanted to. And I'll just give you one. We have at every single college and university throughout American higher education pre-professional programs in nursing and engineering and business and all other types of degrees. And all they do is they become holding tanks. For students who are not admitted directly into the nursing program, that you're in this pre-nursing program, and eventually you can take courses to try to get your GP up up so you can actually get admitted into the program. In the meantime, the student has taken needless courses to get the GPA up. And so if anyone ever spent time to do a degree audit of all your graduates, 
in nearly any field, you will find that your graduates are graduating with more than 120 credit hours. Mm -hmm. And figure every single course costs $1,000. But there are things the institution can do to reduce the cost and reduce student debt tomorrow if they were really interested in it, but the model has to change to a performance-based funding model, not a model of which it rewards the institution based upon enrollments. All right. You know, Scott, one thing I, I was thinking about was something you said before, and I was once again imagining some young person coming up to you after this and saying, well, Mr. DeFelice, you know, you majored in sociology. The whole STEM area changes so fast that Nobody really knows what you're going to be needing in four or five years. There's even some research now suggesting that I think the the most recent crop of STEM uh, graduates, one-fifth of them have jobs where they're actually making use of the training that they got towards it. Maybe I would just be better off majoring in sociology or some kind of lit thing where I just heard Mr. Gargano say, that, you know, learning to write, just being able to write is like the most important thing. And then worrying later about what it is I need to know. Because first of all, there could be a robot doing the job that I'm thinking I'm going to get in five years. You know, you, it might have been automated by then. Certainly the tech is changing so fast. Is there an argument, argument to be made for doing what you did, majoring in something else where you, once again, learn how to learn? Yeah, I think that for, for me, for the tech industry, right, you, you want to at least, least have the basic language of science. So it means you need to be numerate, need, you need to understand some basic science. That doesn't mean you need to become an engineer. It needs you to be able to speak the language. Now, to balance that, Creativity is the most important thing. At the end of the day, if you don't have a creative capability, you're always going to be held back somewhat. So if you can marry those things, it really actually doesn't specifically mean you need to go get a chemistry degree or a biology degree. It means you need to understand the basic language of science because that will be important because that's the foundation for when the, the, the technology you're in today, today dissipates because the next thing happens, it doesn't really matter because you understand the fundamentals. Yeah, and and nurture, nurture that with creativity and empathy and the ability to understand other folks. And, and it's a really nice balance, and you can end up having a career that goes from one domain to the other and back again, and it's, and it's flexible. So I would encourage both of those things. All right. Jenny, I want to do kind of an unusual thing and have um, one of our audience members answer one of the other audience members. Can you bring the microphone down to Paul for just a second? So, well, no, because um, Ellen said something that was interesting. The first part of it was people almost reflexively go to college, right? It's a stepping stone. It's the next thing. I'm going to college. Why? I have no idea. So Paul Teeger's here. What he does for a living, basically, is look at personality type. So you must be seeing this all the time, that people are reflexively going to college whose personalities, whose inclinations, whose skill sets that blossom out of those personalities don't really fit that model, but they just think... Their parents think, somebody thinks they have to go. Well, thank you so much for volunteering me, Colin. Yeah. I appreciate that. Um, I think that is true. You're human capital, Paul. I think that people are wired in different ways. And there are some kids who are just not wired to really be learners the way that high schools, even in colleges, teach. They're more vernaculars. They're more hands-on learners. And for a lot of those kids, not all, but a lot of college really is a waste of money. And a lot of those people end up doing things, being very successful, but working in, in jobs that really make use of who they are. The whole notion of self-fulfillment is an important one. 
I think we're going to wrap it up now. The panel will probably hang around for a few minutes, so if you have specific things you want to talk to other people about. I'm just going to sort of wrap this up with uh, one final observation. This is something I've been thinking about a lot. So I, I have a friend who went to college with me, and he's, he really did become a big, big, big success in the world of venture capital. And one of the things that he's done, he sends his friends all kinds of articles. They'd be articles about anything. They have nothing to do with what he does for a living. They have nothing to do with what we do for a living. And so the other day he sent us an article that was kind of about that. It was about Steve Kerr, who's a former NBA player who's now the coach of the Golden State Warriors, who won the NBA championship. And one of Steve Kerr's terms of employment when he went to work as head coach of the Golden State Warriors was he said that he wanted the administrative, the office staff there to give him articles periodically that had nothing to do with basketball. And so they do that. And he gets them and he reads them. And he's the most successful professional basketball coach. So we first of all knew that we were being sent this article because it proves that if you read a lot of random, if people make you read random stuff, it's good for you. And that's why my friend was sending us this, art, this particular article about what he had been doing for us all these years. But beyond that, it made me think a little bit. And so Steve Kerr was not interviewed for this article. But some of the people who work with him said some of it has to do with the fact that he wants everybody to understand, especially himself, that there's more to life than basketball. They also think it has something to do with his coaching philosophy and his coaching success. The idea that he ingests all this kind of randomized knowledge, that somehow or other it allows him to think differently about the job that he's doing and may really have some role to play in the actual success that he's had. And, you know, so we have these four fabulous, intelligent, um, exciting people up here. And I think all of them would probably agree about this, that whether you're going to do it in the context of a four-year college or not, that whole impulse to randomize your knowledge, to make sure you learn about a lot of stuff, the lifelong quest to keep learning and keep learning about things that don't necessarily feed the specialty you're in is just incredibly important, whether you do it in that college environment or not. Well, I want to thank all of you for your attention. And how about a hand for this great panel here? This